This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everybody. I'm Leslie Aiello, and I'm going to be talking today about how humans evolve the capacity to change the entire planet. And surprisingly enough, this capacity goes back almost two million years. If we look at the human lineage, uh, we know that it's separated from the lineage leading to the modern African apes approximately six to seven million years ago. But our evidence for humans being able to affect their environment is much more recent and only happens with Neanderthals. And this is about 125,000 years ago. Uh, just before uh, Christmas and science advances, Will Robux and his colleagues from the University of Leiden in the ne Netherlands published quite an exciting paper on the German site of Neumark Nord. And the reason this is exciting is it actually demonstrates that the environment around the intensive Neanderthal occupation at this site was a much more open country environment than what's found in nearby comparative sites without the intense Neanderthal occupation. What they did was uh, they were able to determine this through pollen analysis. And here, Neumark Nord 2 and 1, there is much more evidence of herbs in the environment indicating open country than you have in the comparative sites that have very relatively few herbs in the pollen profile, but many more trees. Now, Robux and his colleagues emphasize that it's very difficult to get this type of information. You need a closely stratified site, and you also need comparative sites that are equally stratified to be able to track the pollen through time. Uh, they also note that uh, one of the reasons we may not pick up this trace of hominids affecting their local habitat is uh, that they had relatively small population numbers. Now, certainly population increase uh, has been one of the hallmarks of recent human evolution, particularly in the last four decades. Uh, you see on this graph that uh, from the Holocene, the population was fairly stable. With the introduction of agriculture, the population increases. But within the last four centuries, you have what looks like a exponential increase happening. Now, particularly in recent uh, decades, uh, this is the result of public health advances, medical advances, that has succeeded in keeping all of the age cohorts alive. So basically more people in each age cohort are surviving. That adds up to the increase in population we, we see. And in this particular chart, it's since 1950. And you can see how radically the population pyramid has advanced. Now, it's only in recent years where the fertility has begun to decline. But what's happened as more and more individuals in the reproductive years uh, survive, of course, you have uh, 
uh, greater contributions to the overall population size. Now, to answer the question of how humans evolve the capacity to change the entire planet, we need to address the following two issues. The first is how and why humans evolve the ability to use the environment to our advantage in the broadest terms. And the second is how and why humans evolve the reproductive capacity to expand at the rate that we currently see. Both of these questions can be approached through the evolution of the hominid brain. If we go back to our basic phylogeny and look at the evidence for the increase in hominid brain size, what we see is the period from around 2 to 1.5 million years is a period that we see the increase uh, of the brain up to about 800 to 900 cubic centimeters from a pre-early homo baseline of approximately 400 cubic uh, centimeters. This increase in brain size is a very important uh, point in human evolution because it requires extensive modification to maintain it energetically. Um, one, one of the key papers on this is the gray ceiling hypothesis that was published by Isler and Van Schaik, uh 10 years ago now, but it very clearly illustrates what the issue is. In the chart on the right here, we have intracranial volume or brain size against the minimum population doubling time. And what you can see here is that the larger the brain size in non-human primates, the greater the minimum time to population doubling is. Isler and von Schaik mark about 600 cubic centimeters as the gray ceiling through which primates haven't been able to pass. Now, the reason for this is the allometries that we see in relation to brain mass and fertility. So the larger the brain mass you have over here on the left-hand side, uh, the lower your fertility rate is. And the, what, the basic reason uh, for this is that uh, the larger the brain size, the longer uh, the period of infant care that's required. On the right-hand side here, you have brain mass against lactation period. And you see the very definite um, indication that the larger the brain size, the longer the infant is dependent on the mother. And here, this little dot is humans, where we've bucked this trend. Uh, now, we, we've also been able to buck the trend by the relationship between the neonatal mass and the brain mass. So here again are humans. We produce infants that are smaller and less mature in relation to their brain mass. Now, uh, what uh, Isler and Van Schaik argue is the only way we can do this energetically is to provide aid to the mother. Basically, that this is providing the resources that would allow her to energetically support both herself 
in with a shorter lactation, which translates into a shorter time between births and to greater fertility, and also to allow her to support these more dependent infants. The grandmother hypothesis is one example of this cooperative breeding. This, of course, was put forward by Kristen Hawkes and her colleagues a number of years ago. But other types of alliocare can uh, also feed in here. It doesn't necessarily have to be only the grandmother that's provisioning her daughters and her grandchildren. I always think of this uh, 19th century picture of a cave woman and sympathize with her. Whenever I'm having a hard day, I sort of think of her and uh, what the difficulties it would be or would have been to be able to balance the energetic requirements in these phases of evolution. Now, uh, separating humans and the other apes, we have, of course, the large brains, higher fertility, longer periods of childhood and dependency and development, and longer lifespans. All of these things are energetically expensive in relation to the alternatives we see in the non-human primates. A few years ago, Herman Ponser and his colleagues established that each species has evolved uh, their total energy expenditure. And humans, importantly, have a higher total energy expenditure than other hominoid primates. So here on the right-hand side, we see humans in gray in relation to chimps, gorillas, and pongo, showing the total um, energy expenditure, the high rate of total energy expenditure. He also shows that the basic basal metabolic rate in humans is correspondingly higher than what we see in the non-human apes or the non-human primates. Over 25 years ago now, Peter Wheeler and I put forward the expensive tissue hypothesis as one way that humans could have acquired this extra energy to support particularly the large brain size. And what we uh, were arguing is that at this point in time, from 2 million to 1.5 million years ago or so, Human, the human diet changed to incorporate higher quality foods and particularly animal-based foods. And not only increase the energy availability directly to the large brain, but it, it also resulted in a much smaller gut or digestive system, which also freed up increased uh, energy availability for the brain. Now, we know now that the organ trade-offs, such as the brain-gut trade-off, is not the only energetic adaptation seen in humans. You have cooperation in food sharing, efficient bipedal locomotion, extrasomatic food preparation, such as cooking, cutting, and pounding, that makes the digestion easier, and also efficient tools. In fact, uh, just before Christmas, Thomas Kraft and his colleagues published in Science the energetic payoffs of a human hunting and gathering diet. And this would be a diet that was omnivorous, 
uh, more animal food consumed, but of course also plant food. But based on a cooperative system of hunting and food sharing and gathering. So over on the right-hand side, we have eight great apes, human hunters and gatherers, and human horticulturalists that we'll come to in a bit. But uh, what this shows is that the return rate in human hunters and gatherers is higher than what you find in the great apes. In, in the center, the time spent, apes spend much more time in feeding, hunters and gatherers, as well as the horticulturalists, spend correspondingly less time in their subsistence activities. And at the same time, as I said, the return rate is much higher. So what they're doing here is more or less codifying the basic hunter and gatherer adaptation, the omnivorous type of adaptation based on a cooperative hunting and cooperative food sharing type of adaptation. Now, uh, what they stress is that this is a very high risk and energy intensive adaptation, but it also has a very high return. And the cooperative side of it is the buffer that's allowed it to be successful. Now, obviously, over the years from 2 million, 1.5 million years ago to present day hunters and gatherers, there has been considerable advancement in material culture, such as the throwing stick and the bow and arrow that has increased uh, the productivity of hunting and gathering. Uh, but uh, we still have this as a basic foundation that uh, was a necessity of the early evolution of the brain. Now, uh, once we move past this period of about 1.5 million years ago, things are surprisingly stable, at least until in, in relation to the uh, evolution of the brain size. There's not much that's happening here. Uh, th this is the Homo erectus time period and is also the period where you have the Homo erectus expanding out of Africa and throughout Eurasia. Now, we know relatively little about the specifics of this adaptation, but what we can certainly say is that whatever they were doing, they certainly got it right because it lasted for a million years or so. One idea is that uh, hominids were specializing on the megafauna, and uh, this allowed them to easily adapt or relatively easily adapt to different environmental circumstances as they would expand throughout Eurasia, out of Africa. Now, there is some argument that hominids at this time also affected the population sizes of the megafauna, but we don't have really good substantive information about that. But uh, what we do know is as we come up to about 1.5 million year years ago, things begin to change again. And we see a evolution of the brain size. We see changes in the morphology of the hominids. This is uh, something that corresponds with the increased use of fire, the increased presence of fire in the archaeological sites. We have some minimal evidence of fire 
going back to the Homo erectus period of about 1.6 million years ago. But fire doesn't really become ubiquitous until about 500 or 400,000 years ago. And of course, one of the major effects of this is cooking and the exterior energetic resources this releases and its effect on the human diet. But it also was an essential feature of human adaptation of more northern latitudes. And of course, this has provided the foundation for the human relationship to fire throughout the world. This particular map was published by Archibald in uh, 2013 and shows the extent of the human-derived pyrum, as they call it, or human influences on fire throughout the globe. And, uh, of course, the fire is the foundation for the Industrial Revolution. Now, uh, the last or one of the last major revolutions in human procurement of energy from the environment is the agricultural revolution. This happens relatively recently in time, uh, beginning about 11 to 10,000 years BCE in Egypt, Mesopotamia, a little bit later in Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa and the Americas. Going back to the craft argument of energetics as a human subsistence uh, strategy, horticulture has a higher production, as we can see here on the left-hand side, in relation to hunting and gathering. Time spent is, if anything, slightly less than hunting and gathering, and giving us a higher productivity rate. Again, being able to exploit energy available in the plant resources in the environment. Now, what one other feature of the agricultural revolution is the increase in fertility. And this has been explained by the fact that females don't expend as much energy on subsistence in a horticultural or agricultural situation that they would hunting and gathering. And this leaves more energy available to be put into reproduction. And on the average, it's been estimated that this would increase the human reproduction by about two infants per female. Uh, this has both been documented in modern human populations, as well as from archaeological populations in the past. So uh, we, we, we have, again, with our population chart, the increase in population numbers with the advent of uh, agriculture. And this picks up as the uh, steel plow is invented. We use animal sources to help us in farming. And then also in more recent times, of course, with industrialized farming systems. Again, just before uh, Christmas in Nature Food, Potapoff published the extent of human agriculture that's now about 1,244 million hectares. And just in the past two decades, the extent of agriculture has increased by a net 9%, primarily in South America and Africa.
Now, of course, the population increase isn't only governed by the increase in energy from agricultural efficiency, but also from uh, increases in public health, medicine, and uh, that has the net effect of the population explosion we're undergoing right now. And of course, with the energetic requirements of all of these people, as well as their desires uh, for more efficient life involving energy resources external to what they themselves can produce. So if we go back to our capacity to change the world, it has its roots in the evolution of the human brain, in the associated life history and energy adaptations that began about two million years ago, in our increasing ability to capture energy from the environment. And this would be the original hunting and gathering adaptations, the fire revolution, the agricultural revolution, and of course, industrialization. And finally, in recent years, with the acceleration of population growth through advances in public health and medicine. So our capacity has a long evolutionary history, and we wouldn't be really humans without uh, the ability to maintain the larger brain and the energetic um, requirements that are rooted in that fundamental human adaptation. Uh, thank you very much. Today, what I'd like to talk to you about is uh, what we know about the domestication of crop species and uh, the impacts of the impact of crops and agriculture has had on the Anthropocene. So in many of these talks that I give, I usually start with this picture, which is, I don't know what to call it. I, uh, let's call it a, a New York kitchen sink pizza, where you've asked for every topping on this pizza imaginable. Um, maybe not pineapples. Um, pineapples and pizza is an abomination, so we'll not go there. But then I challenge usually my students or the audience to tell me how many species they think are in this pizza. Usually they'll say, oh, there's five or 10 species. If you look and count the number of species, and I've done that several times, I think there are 16 species on this pizza. There are uh, products of three animal species. There are three fungal species. And there are between... 11 to 12 uh, plant species, depending on how you count. And the interesting thing about this is that all of these species have evolved only in the last 12,000 years. These are relatively new species in the evolutionary timescale. And they're new species because they are a special class of species we call domesticated species. And so what are domesticated species? Domesticated species are species that have evolved with humans and under human control, um, so that we can derive resources or services from them. The most important, of course, are food. Um, we use domesticated crop species and domesticated livestock species as our primary sources of nourishment as humans. And all of these species are unique in that they've only evolved in the last 12,000 years. And they've evolved in the last 12,000 years um, in, in the presence of humans and under the control of humans. So all of this is a, is a special evolutionary process. This comes about by a special evolutionary process we call domestication. And domestication is this process that arises because of this very unique mutualism between two species. In this case, 
humans on one hand, and what we now know of as our domesticated crops or maybe our domesticated livestock. And in this mutualism, what happens is that you get evolution, mostly of the domesticated species like maize or rice or apples or so on, under human-associated selection. This is because humans have created a new environment for these species to grow and thrive in. These are the farms or orchards or gardens. Um, And also humans sometimes directly choose several kinds of varieties or traits that they're interested in, in propagating to the next generation. And over time, because these species are evolving in association with humans, you see the development of new species and also the development of different differences between species that arises because of this domestication process. Now, we really don't know how many domesticated species there are. By some estimates, there are between 250 and 1,000 domesticated plant species and between 40 and 50 domesticated animal species. And there are several features about domestication and these domesticated species. First of all, many of these species have evolved so that you can really tell that they're very different from their ancestors. So here on the left, you see maize or zea maize, corn as we know it. And you can see the traditional corn cob with its multiple ranks of kernel rows and the structure of the corn plant shown on the left. But on the right, you see its ancestor, Teosinte. You can see just by looking at it that Teosinte and maize are very different from each other. The structure of the plant is very different. The, the, the cob, if you will, of Teosinte is very different. It's only one row of kernels, unlike in uh, the modern corn cob, which has multiple rows of kernels. These are just some of the differences that evolve in these species uh, as the domestication process has occurred. And this domestication process actually has taken place really because of a change in human behavioral ecology uh, in the way we survived. So if you think about most of human history, um, the way we got our nutrition, for example, our food is we were hunters and gatherers. Uh, In terms of plants, we went out and gathered um, probably wild nuts, wild grains, and wild fruits in order for um, humans to survive. But starting 12,000 years ago, something happened in uh, the human species. Instead of depending on wild plants uh, as their source of sustenance, um, we decided to deliberately plant these species and cultivate them. So we took these wild species and started to plant them and harvest the, the, the seed or the fruits for the next generation and then planted them again and again and again. And this process of cultivation and harvesting, things started to develop. So for one thing, we developed this new environment called farms. So before these wild species were out in the wild, now they're in this environment that we created for them, which we now call the farm. And the process by which we cultivated and harvested them, we took charge of the reproduction and the dispersal. So no longer were these wild plants um, uh, reproducing in the wild. We as humans began to take control of how these plants reproduced and survived to the next generation. And all of these developed these evolutionary pressures on these species to, to become new species or new populations, which we now know as domesticated species. Now, all of this happened actually relatively recently uh, in the last 12,000 years. So almost all domesticated species we know of, with the possible exception of uh, of dogs, uh, almost all all domesticated plant species and almost all domesticated animal species evolved only in the last 12,000 years. 
Uh, and, and this evolved during a period which uh, geologically is known as the Holocene, where there was a stable climate uh, on the planet. Prior to that, we had more unstable climate. And during this un- instability in the climate uh, prior to 12,000 years ago, um, it was not a good environment by which agriculture could thrive. After about 12,000 years ago, with the stabilization of the climate after the last, the last glacial maximum, it became possible for humans to become farmers and so developed these systems of agriculture and led to the domestication of these many species that we now rely on for our food, uh, for our clothing, and other aspects of our existence. Now, this all originated, first of all, in a, a, an area called the Fertile Crescent, and some of you may recognize this um, this area. Uh, the Fertile Crescent is an area that go, spans from the Levant into the, um, the mountains of uh, southern Turkey, southeastern Turkey, into modern-day um, Iraq, and possibly into Iran. And it is this area where we think the first agriculture was practiced by humans. And this is also where the first crop species evolve. Uh, these are wheat, barley, rye, oats, lentils, peas, all of these, what we might call the founder crops, uh, of, of especially of the Western world, originated from um, in the Fertile Crescent. But actually, agriculture started uh, in different parts of the world. Um, it's believed independently from each other. So aside from the Fertile Crescent in this area that, uh, that is now in the Middle East, uh, agriculture, we think, also independently arose in China. And there they domesticated things like rice and uh, millets and um, soybeans. Uh, and in the New World, there was also an independent evolution of agri- agriculture. And there they uh, you know, domesticated maize and squashes and beans and potatoes um, and sunflowers here in eastern North America. So we still don't know why humans chose to move from hunting and foraging to a primar- primarily hunting and foraging to a primarily agricultural lifestyle. But it's clear that this happened around the world in different societies, possibly independently from each other. And once agriculture was invented as a system, it actually took off so that around the world, we think there are at least 24 regions where domestication of crops took place. Uh, and this occurred on, on, on every continent uh, in the world, except possibly Australia. Now, this took place, as I said, starting 12,000 years ago. And when, when domestication took place, it occurred over a prolonged period of time. And this is actually something that's quite new because uh, a, few, a few decades ago, it was believed that domestication occurred quite rapidly. So the models for how um, plants were domesticated into crops Uh, suggested that it occurred very rapidly. And in some models, it occurred even as uh, in a short time span, like a few hundred years. However, more recent data, first from archaeological work, uh, and then later on, or more recently from genomic data from my lab and other laboratories, it suggests that the process of domestication and the, uh, the origin of agriculture may have taken place over a much wider span of time. So right now, I think the prevailing idea is that um, domestication of crops took place in a protracted uh, manner. Uh, And instead of just a few hundred years for these crops to evolve, it may have taken thousands of years. Um, This is seen, for example, in the agricultural record, where if you look at archaeological sites, you see that indicators of domestication in plants like barley and wheat 
uh, arose in populations and didn't go into fixation. That is, didn't spread throughout the entire species immediately, but it, it took about you know two to 4,000 years for a trait that we think of as a domestication trait to spread to the entire species. So domestication as an evolutionary process didn't occur very rapidly. We think it occurred over several thousands of years. And with the rise of domestication and the ensuing stability in food resources and agricultural surplus, what it did was intensify the sedentary lifestyle of humans. And it gave, eventually gave rise to cities. And with the rise of cities, developed many of the aspects we now see in uh, modern human societies, things like specialization and division of labor, uh, the rise of trading economies, the development of monumental art and architecture, of centralized administration of hierarchical ideologies, things like writing and things like property ownership. All of these can be traced to the rise of cities, which themselves can be traced to the domestication of crops and animals by which these cities eventually um, survived. And not only did the did agriculture and uh, uh, rise up, but and the domestication of these species uh, uh, occur, but these species then spread around the world. So in this map of modern Earth, in the, the sections on green, you see where agriculture is intensively practiced, where the land has been uh, changed over to agriculture. And as you can see, agriculture is no longer confined to the small area in the Middle East called the Fertile Crescent or this portion in, uh, of China or the Mexican highlands. Now agriculture is practiced across a very large portion of the Earth's surface. Uh, and this is in, indeed one of the, uh, the hallmarks of the Anthropocene, that uh, we have transformed the landscape so that large tracts of land are no longer uh, left over to natural processes, but were developed under human control uh, and, and human development. You can see the, the quite amazing spread of uh, crops across the landscape in this, uh, in this slide, where what we've done is we've looked at uh, the archaeological record, and we see where you see evidence of rice agriculture. And starting on the upper left, about 9,000 years ago, you see that rice agriculture occurs only in a few patchy areas around the Yangtze Valley of China. And then for the next 4,000 years, it's really confined to this area between the Yangtze Valley and the Yellow River until it occurs about 5,000 or 4,000 years ago. And then starting about 4,000 years ago, you see a rapid spread of rice agriculture um, all throughout East Asia and then into Southeast Asia. And before you know it, almost all of Asia is now practicing rice agriculture. So in a period of about 9,000 years, you see this crop move from a very restricted area in the world to now dominating an entire continent. And in fact, rice is now grown in all of the continents of the world, except for Antarctica. My lab has tried to look at both archeological data as well as genomic data, looking at the DNA sequences of traditional rice varieties to try to reconstruct the spread of rice and actually other crop species as well. And, and this is from a more recent paper we did where we showed that what I just told you, rice was originally restricted to this area between the Yellow River and the Yangtze River. But starting about 4,000 years ago, there was a, a climate event that occurred, which we know of as the 4.2K event. And what happened worldwide with the 4.2K event is that you start to see a cooling uh, in the world. And what happens to rice at that, uh, at that moment is two things happen. First of all, several rice populations developed to be more adapted to the temperate climate that you now see associated with this cooling of the planet. And so this is the rice that then moves on to Korea and Japan. Uh, this is the rice you see when you, when you eat, when you eat sushi. 
And then rice starts to move southwards. It starts to move to Southeast Asia, both mainland and island Southeast Asia. And it spreads quite rapidly. Starting about 3,500 years ago, you start to see it appearing in mainland Southeast Asia and spreading into island Southeast Asia. And in fact, a more recent reconstruction we did both using both archaeology and genomic sequences you can see this kind of this, this, this loop that rice has made throughout Asia. So starting about 4,200 years ago or so 4,100 years ago with this climate change event called the 4.2K event, we start to see the emergence of temperate rice and then tropical rice that moves further southward into Southeast Asia, loops up through island Southeast Asia from Indonesia into the Philippines, eventually makes its way all the way to Taiwan. In the meantime, the more temperate rice varieties actually makes its way southward to Taiwan as well. And they meet up, this tropical rice and this temperate rice meets up in the island of Taiwan. So you can see that in a period of less than uh, two to 3,000 years, rice has spread all over East and Southeast Asia. And this type, this story is actually seen over and over again in most of the major crop species we rely on for our sustenance as humans. And with the movement of crops, we see a transformation of landscape. These areas, which were what we might call wild areas or natural areas, were transformed by humans in order to practice agriculture. Certainly, you can see this in uh, uh, Southeast Asia and South Asia, where you see terraces for rice agriculture in the mountains and the hillsides, in the Philippines, in mainland Southeast Asia and South China and in Indonesia and Bali, for example. And this just illustrates, again, in the Anthropocene, this large-scale transformation we see of the landscape. But not only the, uh, the, the land is transformed, but even our atmosphere is transformed. So, for example, if you look at uh, methane, which is a major greenhouse gas, it doesn't get as much attention as CO2, but it still is a very potent greenhouse gas. Um, methane cycles in the atmosphere, it has its ups and downs uh, throughout history. And based on what we know in the past, methane levels should have been going down in the atmosphere starting about 5,000 years ago. So that dash line where methane levels were predicted to have gone down based on what was known in the past. But instead from records, uh, from ice core records, you see that methane is actually increasing in the atmosphere. And it's increasing starting about 3,000 years ago, so, I'm sorry, 5,000 to 4,000 years ago. Um, and it was a big puzzle why methane production in the methane levels in the atmosphere were going up rather than down as had been predicted. And it's believed now that part of the reason is the spread of rice and rice paddy agriculture. It turns out that rice paddies are a major source of methane. And in fact, the rise of methane in the atmosphere over the last 4,000 years mirrors the spread of rice paddy agriculture in Asia. And a colleague of mine, Dorian Fuller at the University College London, has essentially mapped the spread of rice paddy agriculture and shown that Paddy agriculture and its expansion is responsible in part for its increase in methane concentration. So you can see how the spread of agriculture is giving rise not only to transformation of the land, but transformation of the atmosphere as well. And finally, it also has an impact on us humans. Uh, we humans are now evolving as a result of our relationship with these domesticated crops and animals, which we rely on primarily for our food. So a major uh, evolutionary change in humans, for example, is the evolution of lactase persistence, uh, our ability to tolerate milk as adults. This mutation and its spread uh, occurred in human cultures 
that adopted dairy or dairy livestock as a source of nutrition. So in the Middle East and into Europe and also in parts of sub-Saharan Africa. And in fact, the persistence of uh, lactase in adulthood uh, can be traced to the movement of these dairy cultures in many different parts of the world. The other change in humans is, for example, the number of copies of the amylase gene. Amylase is the enzyme uh, which we use to digest starch. Um, and in, in the human genome, it's actually found in several copies. And what was found several years ago was that those societies or those cultures that relied on uh, cereal grains uh, or starch uh, for primarily for their nutrition had more copies of this gene in their genome than societies that relied, say, on meat um, for their diet. This was an interesting correlation that suggested, again, that the um, relationship of humans with their domesticated crop species, in this case, domesticated grain, resulted in an, a genetic evolutionary change in humans, in which case um, you have an increased copy number of this crucial enzyme gene that's responsible for starch breakdown. So humans themselves are now evolving and continue to be in the process of evolving as a, a result of our interaction and our relationship with these domesticated crops and animals that we rely on now for our nutrition. So domestication uh, has been called one of the pivotal uh, evolutionary events on the planet. Uh, it certainly was one of both the consequence and also associated with the rise of agriculture, which in itself has been a major feature of what we consider the Anthropocene. Um, and the question now is, where do we go from here as humans? Uh, where are we? Well, in many ways, we're stuck with agriculture. Um, many, uh, many investigators, including my friend Dorian Fuller at University of College London and others, have called agriculture a labor trap for humans. We've been trapped into agriculture as a system by which we gain most of our nutrition. And so for better or for worse, for the uh, immediate future, we're stuck with agriculture as the major system by which we feed ourselves as humans, and we continue to rely on these domesticated species for our nutrition and for parts of our clothing and so on. Um, but we're faced with challenges as humans. For one thing, human populations, because of better agriculture, um, human populations are increasing. And in order to meet the uh, nutritional needs of humans, we also have to increase our agricultural output. It's been predicted that uh, our yields of maize, rice, wheat, and soybean, for example, need to increase by 60% uh, over the next 30 years to meet the population in the year 2050. Now, this is a daunting challenge, and you might be heartened to know that actually yields have continued to increase in our crops by the rate of 1% a year due to uh, basically implementation of scientific uh, agronomic practices, as well as the development of new varieties that allow for an increase in uh, yields in the farm. The problem is that a 1% increase every year is no longer enough. We have to increase our yields by 2% a year in order to meet um, the increasing population we find uh, the planet uh, in. And also in the face of things like climate change and increasing urbanization, that is making the land that we use for agriculture either deteriorate or get smaller and smaller. We face this challenge um, as, a, as a species. Uh, and the, the crisis in agriculture has been known for some time. This was 10 years ago in the New York Times where they devoted an entire feature to what they call the crisis in agriculture, where they called attention to the rise in human populations 
uh, and the fact that even though grain production was increasing, uh, and so grain production per capita was quite constant, um, this this was not going to continue uh, in the foreseeable future. And in fact, one way we're seeing that is we're seeing uh, spikes in the prices of food products over time as we begin to put more and more stress and pressure on the world agricultural system. So one of the challenges we, we face as humans is how are we going to practice agriculture in a sustainable fashion to feed more and more people in the future? So domestication of crops, which is what led to the rise of agriculture, is something that has occurred on the planet and it's a hallmark of the Anthropocene over the last 12,000 years. Uh, and and over, over these 12,000 years, we've learned how to live with these domesticated crops and animals, and we've expanded them throughout the world. And now we're faced as, as humans with uh, the, the challenge of how to be able to use these domesticated crops and animals in a more sustainable fas- fashion to feed an increasingly growing world population in the face of these major Um, climate and land stresses that we face. So I thank you very much for your attention. And um, I hope you learned something from this. And uh, we'll be able to answer questions later on. Thank you very much. Climate change is one of the hallmarks of the Anthropocene. And changing climate is affecting the distribution and prevalence of infectious diseases on a global scale. Um, So these effects are often nuanced, uh, varying from region to region. Uh, For example, here in the United States, Lyme disease, a tick-borne disease that affects nearly half a million people per year, has increased steadily in some regions of the country over the past two decades. And this change has been associated with warming temperatures. Um, Future projections also suggest that warming will drive further regional increases in the, in the prevalence of this disease. So these types of effects are not isolated to human diseases. Uh, various pathogens that cause disease in wildlife, including bacteria, fungi, parasitic worms, um, and viruses, are also projected to increase in response to changes in climate. And this could result in potentially higher rates of infection at high latitudes and lower rates of infection at low uh, latitudes. So these are only two examples of uh, recent efforts to understand links between um, infectious diseases and climate. Um, However, while the effects of climate on disease are widely appreciated now, the inverse, how diseases might affect climate, has received less attention. But infectious diseases can indeed affect climate. Um, The current uh, COVID-19 pandemic um, provides a compelling example of this. In 2020, changes in human behavior um, and policies restricting travel and commerce uh, resulted in the largest annual global decline in carbon dioxide emissions since the 1900s. The largest drop prior to that had been caused uh, by World War II. Changes in global transportation accounted for the largest proportion of that COVID-19 associated drop. 
So while a global pandemic represents a potentially extreme example of the impacts infectious diseases can have on climate, uh, these types of effects are not uh, unique to the virus that causes COVID-19. Many other pathogens can also affect greenhouse gas emissions, although uh, the effects are often more subtle. So one potentially common pathway by which diseases may affect climate involves um, animal methane emissions. Uh, methane is a greenhouse gas with an effect on global warming 28 times more potent um, than carbon dioxide. And enteric fermentation, which is simply the process by which uh, microbes digest carbohydrates in the stomachs of ruminant animals like a cow, is the second most important living source of methane. So second only to wetlands, which also produce a lot of methane. So um, in the last decade, um, atmospheric methane levels have increased rapidly. And about half of the rise in, uh, in methane is attributed to um, emissions from livestock animals. So ultimately, this raises the question of whether diseases in livestock animals can actually mediate global methane emissions. Um, so evidence from the past tells us that this is in fact possible. In the, 18, uh, in the late 1800s, a measles-like virus called rinderpest was introduced into sub-Saharan Africa, uh, where it had devastating effects on livestock and wildlife populations, kill, killing millions of animals. Researchers estimate that, like, that this disease event caused a reduction in global methane emissions equivalent to about 4% um, and via the effects on it had, the disease had on animal mortality. So clearly, uh, past events suggest that uh, infectious diseases can influence animals in ways that have repercussions for the global methane budget. So at present, fascinating experiments are showing new connections between diverse pathogens um, and methane. Um, so one example comes from parasitic worms in sheep. So a series of studies have shown compelling evidence that uh, these particular uh, parasites or worms can affect methane emissions in ways that cut across the entire animal production cycle. First, infected mothers produce less milk um, and their lambs therefore grow more, more slowly. And this results in higher methane emissions per weaned lamb. Second, when lambs are infected, they produce more methane per kilogram of food that they consume. Third, infected lambs gain weight more slowly. So ultimately, they reach their, the production target um, at a later time. And in total, these changes equate to a higher lifetime methane production when an infected animal moves through the production chain. And so it's important to note that parasitic worm infections are incredibly common. Um, in some regions of the world, infection rates can approach 100%, uh, particularly in small animals like sheep and goats. However, current methane emissions estimates from livestock don't account for the fact that, uh, or the possibility that some animals might actually be infected with a range of pathogens. 
Um, and so a simple exercise that accounts for the potential effects of worm infection on production delays as well as methane yield um, suggests that if the entire global livestock population were infected with worms, uh, this could increase methane emissions by up to 50%. So here you see methane emissions from enteric fermentation or from livestock and how this rate has increased over time from the 1960s to the 2010s. And so if we take that value in 2010 and account for potential production delays and changes in methane yield due to worm infection alone, we see that in a global livestock population where everyone is infected, there's a nearly half-fold increase um, in methane production. Of course, this is a very simple um, estimate that only serves to highlight the potential problem. Uh, the details will depend on the pathogens that are involved, uh, the production system in question, how common the pathogens are, which species of livestock we're talking about, um, and a number of other considerations. Nevertheless, rising livestock numbers across the world, uh, their major contribution to methane emissions, and the commonness of livestock diseases all suggest that the livestock disease methane link is an important and urgent one that requires consideration. Crucially, if climate change increases livestock diseases, as we've seen uh, from examples of both human and wildlife pathogens, and livestock diseases in turn exacerbate methane emissions, a vicious cycle could result. So these types of positive feedbacks may increasingly shape the abundance, distribution, and evolution of infectious diseases in the Anthropocene. So for example, Warming temperatures have been linked to increases in drug resistance uh, for bacterial and worm um, parasites of livestock. Um, so these, the rising antimicrobial resistance is leading to less efficacious um, control of these parasites in livestock populations, which enhances the burden of infection, both the number of animals that are infected and the severity of those infections per animal. So this clearly has consequences then for the potential uh, increase in methane emissions. And so the cycle can essentially just continue. So how do we understand and break this cycle? To do this requires some information that we don't yet have. And to get that information uh, requires that we address some key questions. One of those questions is which livestock infectious diseases are actually most sensitive to climate? And importantly, where, are, where do those uh, sensitivities happen in terms of geography? Second, how do changes in livestock disease actually affect methane? Um, so from the examples I've talked about, we've seen that uh, diseases can affect methane both indirectly via their effects on the production chain, for instance, by slowing down the growth rates of animals or perhaps by leading to mortalities of animals that require animals to be replaced at a faster rate. But disease can also affect methane directly. 
And that means that hosts, the interactions between the host animal and the parasite are somehow changing the fermentation process in a way that's leading to higher methane yields. Um, so we need to understand the biological mechanisms that underlie those types of effects. Also, how do these processes operate across different ecosystems and different production systems? We know that these processes that link temperature to changes in host pathogen interactions to changes in methane are all depend on the environmental context. So exploring these links across diverse e ecosystems and production types um, is essential. Finally, to do this, um, collaboration across disciplines is going to be key. Linking disease effects to methane requires an understanding of the hosts that are involved. Um, so animal scientists, an understanding of the pathogens that are involved, microbiologists, parasitologists, disease ecologists, understanding the environmental context in which these host pathogen interactions are occurring. That's gonna require ecologists. Um, and ultimately, we need to understand the economic context um, in which uh, production, animal production and supply chain uh, issues are involved. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.